Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. smiling faces. Happy February. Glad to be back up here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, as he said, my name is Alan, and um, I am one of the leaders here at Crew, along with our other beloved staff, and I'm so thankful for all you guys. I'm thankful to have the chance to get up and bring the word tonight as we talk about and uh, continue our series, which is called God is Good. Let's go back. Not there yet. Still talking about this, the, the fun graphic slide, God is Good. We um, have been doing these series for the past few weeks, and if you've been here, you kind of understand. In this series, kind of what we're doing is um, we are talking about, given the thorny things that surround us in life, how do we kind of live out this Christian life that we have been called into, and how do we deal with some of the cultural message? I'm a little too hot. Can you turn me down a little bit? And Otherwise, I'm, I'm going to start yelling in a minute when I get passionate and it's going to blow everybody out. Um, it's kind of underscored with this foundation that God is good and the idea that there is this truth that as we follow God, as we follow Jesus, he takes us to a good place because his, his heart is good and his heart is for us. And because God is good and this doesn't change, we can have confidence. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in anxiety. But even in these thorny issues of life that we have to navigate as, as we follow him, because he made us, because he created us, he knows what's best for us and he wants what's best for us. We can trust as we follow, as we follow him, that's going to be good. And that's kind of the foundation of everything. So we have talked about any number of things. We've talked about fear of the future and just all the anxieties that come with that. I think last week we talked about community and just some of the the ways we can idolize that and the thorny issues surrounding that and the choices we have to make and understanding God's wisdom. And tonight we're going to talk about um, dealing with a different cultural message that we receive that's kind of all around us. And it's a little hard to explain, but we're going to do the best we can. And it's important because there is a cultural message that is so pervasive in our generation that we hardly notice it. And it has to do with the role of feelings. And so we're going to look at a very interesting passage of something Jesus said, which is highly countercultural for us. And a lot of us, when we hear it, we're either going to be mystified or we're going to be outraged that he would say such a thing. But he says it because he's good. And he knows what's best for us and he wants to show the way for us. And so here's the passage. I'm going to read kind of a long section of scripture to give it the context, and then we'll come back to a different part. But it's going to be up here on the screen. It starts with Mark 7. And here's what it says. <clears throat> the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. So we're talking physically dirty and ceremonially, ceremonially dirty. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding the tradition of the elders, 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, like the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And so they're getting kind of accusatory here. And they have a long conversation, and we'll skip down to verse 14 to kind of pick up the heart of it. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Actually, I have to pause on it. That's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it means I can eat bacon. That is just a fabulous verse. Memorize that one, put it in your journal. It's just freedom of following Christ right there. Anyway, I, diver I digress. Verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For within him, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. What do I mean when I say the words cultural message? Let's start there. There are assumptions about reality in our lives and in our culture that become so common they hardly ever get questioned or even noticed and so these things are usually all around us because we want them to be they're very popular and we believe them typically because they cater to some human desire which means we want them to be true but that doesn't necessarily mean they are I like what Tim Keller has to say about this idea of these cultural messages that are kind of around us and really are in every culture and here's a great quote that I pulled, because I think he can say it better than I can. He says, these deepest normative notions are not usually consciously held propositions. They are more like unchallenged common sense about what is real, possible, and imaginable. Because they're considered self-evident, they're not based on any thought-out justifications. And the holders often become very defensive if such justifications are asked for. We feel they don't need them. It's just the way things are. It is literally unthinkable or unimaginable to us that they are not true. To disagree with them is not to be merely mistaken, but ridiculous. It's this idea, you can see that what he's saying is these cultural messages that, that are often around us are kind of like water to a fish. In that you're surrounded by it and you swim in it, but we just don't even notice it. And there's so many messages in our culture and really in every culture that are like this that it's just really hard to get a handle on them. But as followers of Jesus, we have to be more aware than that. And we have to pay attention to these things as much as we can because not all of the cultural messages around us are good or are true. And so the cultural message that we are talking about tonight in so many words is this. Your feelings are reality and define you. I'll say it again. The cultural message that we're focusing on tonight is this very American cultural message that says your feelings are reality and define you. 
Now, I don't know how that hits you. It sounds strange to hear that said in actual words, doesn't it? It, it sounds kind of like clothes that suddenly don't seem to fit right. But again, the reason it sounds strange, I think, is because, as Keller just said, these messages are usually not communicated in direct propositions. They're usually contained in images or stories or silent assumptions. And I'll give you some examples of that in a minute. But if you think about that sentence I just said, that your feelings are reality and define you, you begin to realize how common that thought is in our culture. Now, all right, how do I want to do this? This is the hard part. <clears throat> okay, let's just say this. <clears throat> I know where we are, okay? This is crew. It's Tuesday night. You do not come here to be academic. I know, look, I get it. I know why you come here. You come here because the worship is awesome and you want to meet that other cute person who may end up being that significant someone. All right, I get it. You don't come here to listen to me and you don't come here to get academic because that's what you do during class all week, right? Nevertheless, I'm going to ask you to indulge me for a couple of minutes and that we're going to need to get academic here to understand some things, but I think it's important. So I'm going to ask you to ride with me on this, okay? As well, it gives me a chance to kind of exercise my hidden geek. So here's a book. This is one of my favorite books recently. It is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesis, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. It's written by Carl R. Truman, who is a professor um, and uh, has a, a PhD from the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, and he was at one point the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton. So he's a very learned dude. And this is a book that I doubt Many people in this room will ever read. It's, uh, it's not a book I'm telling you to go out and buy. It's a scholarly book. It's written by a scholar, two scholars, and I like to challenge myself with a book like this periodically, and I'm so glad I did because this is now one of my favorite books because I think this has got to be one of the landmark works of our, of our time, time meaning at least this decade, if not so far in the 21st century. Because what he does in this book is he traces a recent change in Western cultural thought about how we think about identity, or as philosophers like to describe it, how we think about the notion of self. And the chapter one of this book is called Reimagining the Self. That's how philosophers tend to talk, as you know from your philosophy classes. And his concept is simply this. In the past 30 to 50 years, which is no time at all, as far as the shaping of an entire culture's worldview, very recent. He says that our culture has shifted the idea of self from being shaped by relation to external points of reference, like your community or your family, or unchangeable realities like nature or the existence of God. And instead, we have shifted it into this definition where self is completely individual, internal, and a psychological choice. So who are you? Well, you are who you choose. You are completely independent in choosing who you are. It is internal, it is psychological, and it is individual, it is personal. Now, I mean, you can do, do a lot of research on the growth of this idea. A lot of it comes from the writings of people like philosophers like Michael Foucault, or a feminist writer in the 70s named Gloria Sheehan. And Truman traces it, he even goes all the way back to the, the uh, 
romanticism in the 1800s and does five chapters on that, which is total overkill. And, but I guess when you're a scholar, you do things like that. But all of this to say this change has had a massive effect on us. And he kind of builds on a couple of philosophers named Philip Reef and Charles Taylor, who was one of the most brilliant philosophers of the 20th century. And here's a quote that'll kind of capsulize it for us. He says, Reef makes a point very similar to that of Charles Taylor in his understanding of the human self, that psychological categories and an inward focus are the hallmarks of being a modern person. Good sentence. This is what Taylor referred to as expressive individualism, that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Did you get that? We find our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. It is pretty impossible to deny that that sentence describes our current cultural moment. I mean, that's just kind of in the air we breathe these days. And you see this. How many shows or movies have you seen where eventually some character says, just look down inside of you and you'll find everything you need, right? Or somebody says, you just need to live your truth. Which, of course, brings all of truth into question. But it just feels right that we would say something like that, right? Just dig down deep inside. Just look inside of you and you'll find out who you... This is everywhere. This is every movie you've ever seen in the past 10 years, right? And so what happens is this common sense idea that we, we consider common sense just because it's repeated so often is that we should get in touch with our feelings and accept that they define who they are and then just live that out. And when we do that, we call that what? Being authentic, right? And how many times do you hear that word in our culture today? All the time. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, one of our values here in crew is that we would be authentic, but not in the sense that this means. Here's another quote about that. It says, satisfaction and meeting, authenticity, are now fine by an inward turn. And the culture is reconfigured to this end. Indeed, it must now serve the purpose of meeting my psychological needs. I must not tailor my psychological needs to the nature of society, for that would create anxiety and make me inauthentic. You know what this is? This is you do you. I mean, if that is not the motto of today, what is, right? But this is what he's saying is this idea of yourself and your identity come from your own psychological inward choice. And if anybody were to oppose that, well, that would be terrible. Society has to cater to that. And so I maintain this is kind of the cultural message that surrounds us, even though no one puts it into words. Maybe the best example that we could point to of that that's probably the most familiar is... Elsa. That's right. You know what I'm talking about. Let it go. Let it go. Become one with the ice and snow. Elsa, right? I mean, Elsa is such a perfect picture of this. I know you all grew up with her. Thank you. But she, what is she, what is she singing about? And what is her character doing at that point? If you look at the words of the song, Let It Go, it just so encapsulates this, right? Because in, in the lyrics, she says she is no longer going to be the good girl that her kingdom and her family wants her to be. And instead, she's just going to let out all of this winter magic that is in her that is truly herself, right? And then she says, these are the lyrics of the song, there is no right and wrong, no rules for me. It's all about her inward choice, 
right? It's all about her finding her identity by just getting in touch with her feelings and letting them out. And by doing so, she becomes her authentic self, and she's a hero. And I know some of you are kind of like, you're ruining my favorite childhood movie. Stop. I'm sorry. Actually, later on in the movie, she kind of realized that by doing so, she actually does harm the community around her and the people she loves, and she has to kind of get brought back in and realize that actually I am partially determined by the people around me and those I love, and, but we're not going to get into analyzing the whole movie. <laughs> Let me give you another example. So I'm a gadget guy. Do any of you have an Alexa in your house? A little, okay, couple people. So I'm a gadget guy. I have four. And my house is tiny. I, I, I love them. Um, but here's the thing. So Alexa has this feature that if you set it up to every day when you get up, you can say, Alexa, good morning, or something like that. And, and Alexa will answer you, and she'll tell you some fun fact about the day, like, you know, what happened on this day in history or something like that. And then she'll tell you the weather and whatever else you would set up on her. On October 11th, 2021, I awoke in the morning and I said, Alexa, good morning. And here was Alexa's answer to me. Alexa said, good morning. I'm trying to get the robot voice right, right? Good morning. Today is National Coming Out Day, a day to celebrate each person's right to be who they are, to love who they love, and to take pride in themselves. Have a great and authentic day. And I sat there thinking to myself, Wow, even Alexa is trying to enculturate me. It's like, what's going on? And of course, Alexa's a computer. I mean, it only says that because a human being put that in there. But it, it's because these cultural messages, they're just all around us, right? And this is where we get this whole idea of I'm authentic if I just get in touch with my feelings and live them out. So Truman says there is kind of a result in our culture that comes from this. And here's another quote. That which hinders my outward expression of my inner feelings, that which challenges or attempts to falsify my psychological beliefs about myself and threatens to disturb my sense of inner well-being is by definition harmful and to be rejected. And that means that traditional institutions must be transformed to conform to the psychological self and not vice versa. You see what he's saying? Because I accept that my inner feelings are truth, anything that disagrees with my inner feelings is nothing less than a personal threat to my well-being. And therefore, every institution around me has to adapt to me, has to adapt to that reality that I declare. You know what? This is absolutely true. And you are in the middle of it right here on a college campus. We're right at the center of this because this is why there are all these debates about safe spaces and cancel culture and trigger words and all these culture war kind of things. Because that all comes from this unspoken cultural message that your feelings are reality and define you. Am I making sense? So that's kind of the academic part. So if we were to summarize, we might say this. Here's our cultural message. Your feelings are reality and define you or determine who you are. Now, there are three pretty key assumptions to this cultural statement. Number one is all of our feelings are consistent. In other words, well, we'll get to that. Number two is none of our feelings are influenced by the culture or community around us. And number three is that all of our feelings are good. All that has to be true for this cultural message to be true. And here's the problem. 
none of these three assumptions are true. Think about it. Are all your feelings consistent? Do you always know what you really want? Do your feelings ever change? Thank you. That one's pretty obvious. What about none of our feelings are influenced by culture and community around? Of course they are. You don't think that we're not influenced by the desire to belong to an in-group or a community or to gain acceptance? Well, of course they are. You don't think we're not influenced by what other people say and what they accept and tell us is acceptable? This can very easily be disproven philosophically, but we won't go there. And then the third one is all of our feelings are good, right? And this kind of leads us to the counterculture message that Jesus gives us. And let's zero in on it at the end of that passage that we just read. Here's the counterculture part that Jesus says. He went on. What comes out of a man, and I hope you understand when the when it says man and men and, and such like that, that's just English awkward pronoun usage. In the Greek original language, the word includes both male and female men and women. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and I like this last one is tacked on the end, and folly. In other words, Jesus is saying, our hearts, when they bubble up, we do and say stupid, foolish things. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying, that this is actually the state of the human heart. And he says, all of these evils, they come from inside, and they make a man unclean. Now, tell me that that is not counter to the cultural message that your feelings are reality and define you. How audacious a thing for Jesus to say in the 21st century, Western culture. And yet he does. We could make, uh, gosh, all kinds of meditation and observations on this passage, but I'm only just going to make a couple to kind of wrap, wrap this thing. I'm just going to make a couple of simple observations about what Jesus says in light of what our culture says. The number one is this. The first thing I notice is that Jesus recognized the heart's importance. You know, the context of this passage that we read at the very beginning, we have the Pharisees who were Jewish leaders at the time who were super legalistic, and they're actually ignoring matters of the heart. They think that by washing their hands a lot and washing their pots and kettles and clothes and being all clean and doing all the right external things, dressing the right way, saying their prayers really loud on the street so people see whatever it may be, they think they become righteous. And Jesus says, no, are you kidding me? Don't you know it's what's in your heart that makes you unrighteous? Don't you know that your externals do not make you righteous? They're ignoring the heart, trying to pretend it's not there, and justify themselves on that score. But Jesus says, no, that's, that's not possible. And he calls people to pay attention to it. You know, our feelings and our hearts are important. Um, there's a I think I read this. There's a right-wing commentator, one of the news politicos. Is it Ben Shapiro or somebody? I don't know, I'm getting the name wrong. And I think on his, his Twitter feed or his website, he's had this tagline for a number of years that say, the facts don't care about your feelings. And, and, you know, that may be true. Maybe the facts don't care about your feelings. But Jesus does. 
Jesus cares very much what's in our hearts, and he cares very much about the feelings that we experience there too. You know, what is a proper godly perspective on feelings? I had a professor in a seminary class who taught a counseling class. He had this great line. He said, your feelings are like your kids. You can't throw them in the trunk, but you wouldn't let them drive either. And, and what I think, that's so right. Because listen, God is emotional. From the very first page of the Bible in Genesis, when God creates something, he says it's good. He experiences an emotion, satisfaction. And then later on, you see all kinds of emotions. God can be angry in a righteous way. God is very pleased with some things and with us, like we talked about the first week of the semester. Um, God can be jealous in a godly way. God can, can experience all kinds of emotion. He's an emotional God. Why do you think we're emotional? We're emotional because we're created in his image. We're emotional beings. That's part of who we are. That's a good thing. That's not bad. Our feelings are important. Because they're godly. Now, we don't always use them in a godly way. But we're emotional and God is emotional. And so feelings are a part of us. And I just want you to hear this. Jesus pays attention to that. With this, when we have struggles, when, when we struggle with depression and fear and identity, those are real. Those feelings are seen by him. And your anxiety is a real feeling. And Jesus sees that. And if you experience SSA or gender dysphoria feelings, God sees that. And he knows you. And he thinks that's important. And he cares. Because we are emotional beings and that reflects him. We have feelings because God is a feeling God. And we can't ignore that state of our hearts. But you don't let them drive. Now why? Because of the second observation I would make about this passage, and that is Jesus not only recognizes our heart's importance, but he also recognizes our heart's sinfulness. And this is why what he says is so countercultural. The idea that all of these evil impulses come from inside of us is anathema to modern 21st century Western culture. Our culture says what we feel defines us, it's our nature, and assumes that that's all good. But Jesus says no such thing. Why is there so much sin and pain in our world? Why is it that we suffer so much? You see, our sin it comes from us. The way we treat each other, the brutality we do to each other, comes from inside, Jesus says. It comes from our hearts. We are sinful people. And you probably don't have to look very far to see that. You can see that in your best friend, or you can get on the news and you can see it in Russia and Ukraine. It's everywhere. Where does that come from? Jesus says it comes from our hearts. In order to say our feelings are what define us, we actually do the opposite of what the Pharisees did, which was legalism. They tried to ignore that and say they were righteous. We, in our culture, do the opposite. Instead of ignoring the sin in our hearts, we embrace the sin in our hearts and declare it's not sin at all, which is called license. And in the end, that harms us. That kills us. But good news, God is good, and there is a better way. So we are followers of Jesus, and because God is good, following him leads us to good places, and this is no exception. So we're following our feelings often, most often leads us to confusion or disappointment or hurt. Hearing what Jesus says and following him 
leads us to good places with quiet waters and restores our soul, leads us in paths of righteousness like it says in Psalm 23. And it restores us because he created us and God knows what's best for us. And the better way is the truth that we are not defined by our feelings, but by our relationship with him. How can that be true? How can we, as a people who are so naturally twisted and evil in our hearts, find a peace and a joy and an identity that is unshakable with a God who is so different from us? And the answer is it comes through Jesus Christ. And it comes through the gospel. And it's simply this. We are sinful and separated from God and our evil comes out of us as Jesus said, and we practice it on one another until our world is a disaster. But God is still with us. And Jesus came, and when he died on the cross, by taking all that shame and the evil we have done to one another, undeservedly, Jesus receives the punishment, the shame, the guilt, the fear that that sin creates and wipes it away. And he declares us to be clean. And when we put our faith in that, a spiritual change happens in our hearts. You know, it talks about in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, one of the ways it describes the new covenant or this new relationship with God is God says, I will put a new heart within them and give them a new spirit. I will take away their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. And what he's saying is a heart change happens in my followers. A heart change happens in those who truly know me. That sinfulness in us can be taken away so we're not burdened by it anymore. And now we find our identity in the right place, which is as children of God. For as many as received him, he then, to them gave the right to become children of God. So no, our culture is not right. Our identity is not determined by our internal psychological choice and by getting in touch with our feelings and living them out. It is determined by something external. It's determined by a very fixed point, the God of the universe who is holy and good and does not change. And when we are loved and accepted by him, we are his children. And that is the best news in the world. Y'all, be at peace. You don't have to follow those feelings that are so confusing. And you don't have to try to live out all the meaning in your life. And you don't have to make everything perfect according to your deepest desire that we're not even sure what it is because it changes. There's so much freedom from all of that confusion as we follow Jesus because God is good. And he takes us to good places. And our identity in him is a good place. And you are secure there. Be at peace. If you have never heard that before, if you've never considered it this way before, you're kind of new to all this. Maybe you're just here for the first time because a friend brought you or something like that. And you want to talk more about this, we would love to do that. You can talk to anybody you've seen on stage tonight or that card that's on your chair. There's a little box that says, I'm not sure about the God thing, but I'd love to have a conversation. You can just check that and fill out your name and leave it on your chair. And we'll shoot you a text. We'd love to have that conversation. Or if you have heard something tonight that you think is... It's kind of a breakthrough for you that you never realized before. And you want to pray with somebody about that. Every, every week on Tuesday by the brick wall over here, we have some, some people that are just willing to pray 
with you and over you, personal, confidential, and they would love to do that with you as well. But isn't this good news? It really is. Let's pray. Lord, following you really is our joy. It really is release and freedom and good news from the pressures of this world. And we just rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, that your word for us is good, even when it counters the word we normally hear. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us a wisdom to understand our own hearts, to, to see the wickedness there, but also to rejoice in the release from it through you. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have rescued us, that you have brought us who are far away from God near to him again, that you have reconciled us by your physical death through your blood, that we might know God, that we might be called the children of God, and our identity might be secured. Lord Jesus, how can we, how can we not praise you enough for this? We just rejoice in it. It's just fantastic. Father, make us children of light that reflect that to our world, which often just lives in so much confusion that we would live in if we didn't have your word to teach us. We love you so much. Amen.